Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renew Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus. Over the summer, we're going through the book of Psalms, uh, parts of it, and also David's life. So we're walking through these narratives in David's life from him being anointed to him being king. But as we go through these narratives, we're pulling back the curtain into a psalm that relates to that point of his life. And we're trying to understand how is he relating to God? How is he crafting his prayer in this moment? How is he relating to himself? And so today we're going to look at David at Gath. But before that, we do this thing at our church where before the sermon, we break off into small groups of three and four. And it's an opportunity for you guys to meet the people around you. And for us also just to honor your presence and your story. I never want a church to be like going to AMC. Not that any of us go to that anymore. But, you know, walking in, watching a show and leaving without saying hi to anyone, without sharing our life. Um, that just feels terrible to me. I hope that church is a place where we could share a story and pray for each other. And some of, the, some of the questions are a little dark, like today. So today's question is, what was the last time you felt betrayed, canceled, or what was the last one? <laughs> Slandered. And um, sorry about that if you're here for the first time. You can share something maybe appropriate to um, the strangers around you. But uh, yeah, please talk to one or two people next to you, and I'll come back up and we'll go into the sermon. one two all right thanks everyone thanks for sharing really appreciate y'all i know who wants to w wake up to this question right so i understand i understand it's not an easy question to get to uh but since you guys shared i wanted to open up a little bit someone was talking to me a couple weeks ago her name's grace she's newer to our church and she's like loving it, right? The community's good. She's been enjoying the, the services, meeting uh, y'all, small groups. And I was like, you came on a good year because 2018 was tough. 2018 and 19 were tough years for this church, for me personally. So I want to share about that. We've gotten over it. We've matured. We've grown. But um, I, the next three slides is actually from 2018. I pulled it directly out of my slide deck of this sermon. And it was actually a really difficult sermon for me. Uh, traumatic, maybe. It's, it, was, it was just a really, a really hard time. I remember Dr. Ken made comments uh, through Chrissy, like, is Wilson mad? And then another, another close friend of mine says, man, the last couple of sermons, you seem really upset. And I was because um, I just felt like there was just a lot of slander and gossip, and specifically about me. And um, it was just tough to work through. And so Erwin comes back for a timestamp from uh, China. And even as we were reflecting about it, me and Erwin at the staff retreat, he was like, I remember coming back to the church, and he helped me plant it. And he said, it just felt really different. Like, people weren't close anymore. There was a lot of fractions, and, and people were really critical. So 
so this was our first slide. The second slide is work less and pray more. So one of the, one of the critiques, there were a few, but one of them was that I wasn't working hard enough. They were questioning whether I was working throughout the week, whether I was just playing volleyball. You know, how many hours is he actually putting in? So I actually put this as our first, one of the first slides to put people off balance, to, to say, actually, I feel called to work less than I am now and to pray for the church more, which is a direct, like, response to me not working hard enough. And then this is the really sad slide. I feel, I feel kind of sad talking about it. Um, I put out my work hours. So in front of the church, after saying that I should work less, I actually told them, hey, this week I worked 56 hours. 19 hours of meeting, one of them went 6.5 hours. Um, group meetings, 12. Staff meetings, 8. Office and sermon prep, 12, which is actually not a lot for a sermon. And then Sunday service, 5. And I said, you know, it's kind of a typical week. I probably put in 50 to 60 hours a week. Um, but the harder parts of ministry is the toll it was taking on my family life. How I didn't have dinner with Nina and Liam uh, five days out of the week. After church, I felt really depressed and, and, and low. After preaching, there was a season where I would just rest, wrestle with depression after every sermon. And then there's all the intangible hours. Where basically I'm just thinking about church all the time. Whether I'm eating whether I'm playing, except for volleyball, my perfect haven. And um, I've literally, I've had countless dreams about our church, whether I'm just like setting up chairs or whether uh, Kristen's like, all right, well, this is going to preach. I'm like, I didn't know I was preaching this Sunday. I'm like racking my brain for a sermon, right? So why this is sad is because the pulpit isn't supposed to be used to defend yourself. Uh, but I just felt cornered. I felt like people were asking these questions and talking about it, and I didn't know who they were. And the worst is when someone's like, hey, someone else asked me whether you're working enough hours. Someone else asked me whether you're playing volleyball too much. And when it's someone else, when it's anonymous, I'm sure you guys have all experienced that kind of gossip where someone is telling you what someone else said, but they don't tell, want to tell you who that someone else is. So you just assume that everyone is that someone else. You're looking around and you're not sure who's talking about you or who's on your side. You're not sure who your friends are anymore. And we've all been through, to some extent, the sense of abandonment and betrayal, feeling slandered. Sometimes it's at church because we're not perfect. Um, sometimes it's in our own families, our close friends, or our workplaces. David, at this point of his life, is on the run. And his whole country and king has turned against him. I titled the sermon, David, the Madman. We're looking at 1 Samuel 17, 10 to 14. And the Psalms we're going to open up today is Psalm 56. And if you went to small group this week, we go through these passages, roll up our sleeves, and we get to ask questions and think about it and gain context. So David is in Gath, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 10 to 11, if you want to turn there. That day David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. But the servant of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his, his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate letting saliva uh, run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, and this is hilarious, 
look at this man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I short of madman that you would bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? He's like, I have enough crazy people in my life. I don't need one more, right? Pretty awesome. You don't see too many jokes in the Bible. So, so there's that. But, but David going to Gath is one of the most desperate things he could do. Because Gath is an enemy territory. The, it's a city of the Philistines. So when these women were coming, were singing about David's conquest as he's riding in with his troops, when they're saying Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands, they're talking about Philistines. They're talking about this very city he's trying to reside in. He's killed tens of thousands of Philistines. It's like a Ukrainian hero being so pursued by Zelensky that he would go to Putin for shelter. Think about that. How desperate do you have to be? Not only is Gath in the Philistine territory, but it's the home of Goliath. Goliath was their hometown hero. He was their rep, right? He stood in front of armies challenging them um, in a gladiator fight. And David slain Goliath. David was actually holding Goliath's sword at this time. And Goliath had five more brothers. We don't know if they were in the town, but if you, I don't know if you can fight one of these guys, eight foot tall, seven feet tall, ten feet tall, but he had five more. And he's walking into their homeland. This was, um, it, it's almost nonsensical. What would cause David such desperation that he would go to the enemy for safety? An enemy that he had, um, that he had been fighting for years of his life. Well, what type of desperation would cause someone to do that? Well, we're going to turn to Psalms chapter 56, verse 1 and 2, 3 and 4, talks about David's desperation. But before we go there, I just want to explain a little bit of this introduction. So it has some musical notation to the tune of A Dove on Distant Oaks. We don't have that tune, so we don't know how this psalm is supposed to be played and sang. Mictam is also a musical notation. But what we do know is the psalm is directly tied to David and his time in Gath. That he is reflecting on this moment of being seized by the Philistines as he's running from Saul in Gath. And the last thing I want to point out that might be interesting to, to the nerds out there is that the director of music, that, that phrase in Hebrew actually has three different meanings. And we're not sure which one this one pertains to. We, we use the director of music in the NIV translation because of the musical notations that come after, which makes sense. But there's two other translations that are very intriguing. One is you could be translated as for the leader. So thinking about as you're leading your family, as you're leading your community, your company, what it looks like to have this deep life of prayer that David is helping people cultivate. And, and leaders are often put in this position where we feel betrayed and gossip about. Leaders, your weaknesses are fully displayed. And either people come around you to help you or they don't, or they expose it. The, sec- the third meaning I like the most, another way to translate this phrase in Hebrew is for the end. For the end. So it's for the end is a philosophical term like the means and the end. But what I'm thinking about is how 
this psalm is supposed to purpose the moments of suffering and betrayal and feeling alone in someone's life. What is the purpose behind these seasons that we go through? So in verse 1, it says, Be merciful to me, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. All day long they twist my words. They scheme. All their schemes are for my ruin. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, hoping to take my life. So David is talking about being hunted, about people trying to trap him and take his life. And that's very much what's going on. There's this deep betrayal David feels. King Saul was the first king of Israel. And David had served him and given his life for him many times over, like willing to give his life, going to war, standing against Goliath, taking armies to battle against the Philistines, all for the honor, all for the name of Saul. But Saul was driven to madness from that one line in Gath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David, when he came back from a military conquest, the women would go out and sing this chorus. And then Saul turns inward and to his attendants and says, why do they give David more glory than me? And this jealousy started erupting in his heart. And he was starting to think about how to kill David. He sent him on more conquests, hoping the Philistines would take his life. But he came back victorious. He offered David his daughter as his wife. And he said, you go kill 100 Philistines and you can marry my daughter. David comes back with 200 lives taken. And then David, Saul just starts throwing spears at David, really blatantly killing him. And then lastly, he goes to his home when he's sleeping, trying to kill him in a really vulnerable and intimate way. And for David, the man that was his father-in-law, his king, the man where he shared these really close moments with, David invited, Saul invited David into his, into his court because he was tormented by demons. And David was playing worship for him, playing the first guitar, the harp. And that's like a really intimate experience. And this man goes to his home to kill him. I remember uh, me and Ben grew up together. He led worship this morning, and he was always great on guitar. And I remember there were many times in our relationship where I'd go to his house or go to his dorm, and I'd be like, hey, can you play this song for me? Like, my soul needs to sing this song. And he would play it, and I would be able to worship the Lord in this, through this song that I couldn't play for myself. And David and Saul shared that proximity. And then Saul goes to kill him. Saul goes to kill him and chases him and hunts him to the extent where he's going to Gath for hiding. He goes so far, his hunting party goes so far to kill David that David gets Goliath's sword and bread from a priest. And, and um, it's a commune of priests. And when Saul finds out, he goes there and he slays 80 priests and their families. His own soldier, his right-hand man, wasn't willing to kill the priest because he feared God. So this foreigner killed the priest on Saul's behalf. And David's like, this man, if he's willing to kill the priest of God, um, he's willing to do anything. So he flees to Gath, and he's desperate. He's a hunted animal. And lastly, I want to point out that there's this torment of all day long, they twist my words. They scheme, they scheme to take my life. That somehow the slander and gossip 
are factored in to David's uh, sorrow and pain as much as him is being, he's being haunted, uh, hunted. And I, I think if you've ever gone through a season of slander from your family or your friends, people close to you, your workplace, it feels like death. And David is holding his reputation being torn to pieces, his men turning their backs on him as in the same light, in the same pain as him losing his very life. So how do we respond when we feel this way? How do we move through this season and craft prayers around moments of feeling abandoned and betrayed and slandered? Here's what David says next. Because of their wickedness, do not let them escape. In your anger, God, bring the nations down. Record my misery. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. First, David appeals to God as judge. And he's asking for the wrath of God to come down on these people who are pursuing him. You know, when we think about our theology, we skirt around the concept of God, his judgment, and wrath. We're not comfortable talking about it. Because we often see ourselves as the guilty party, right, as the defendant. God is judging our sins. His wrath is coming on us. But Jesus comes. He takes this, the wrath of God on the cross, and we're forgiven, and so we're not guilty under God. And that's laid out in Romans. It's correct theology. But the Jews had a different view of God being judge. They had a different view of their position before God. They didn't see themselves as the defendants most of the time. They don't saw themselves as the plaintiff. They... They saw themselves as the victim, being wronged, appealing to a judge who had power to take revenge. They saw themselves as powerless, appealing to a powerful judge to enact justice. They saw themselves as the widow, as the poor, who earthly judges won't hear, but they have a great judge in heaven who will be fair and true to the law. And so David in Psalms oftentimes goes to God as, as judge and asks for his judgment, his anger, and wrath against his enemies. And I think that's a prayer maybe that we need to be more familiar with. Why is that? Because when we allow God to be the judge and to enact revenge, when we surrender judgment to him, we release ourselves from being judge and from enacting revenge. We allow God to take that instead of ourselves. And this spares us. This spares us from callousing up our hearts. This spares us from being entrenched in bitterness. And mostly it spares us from sinning against God. You know, this Old Testament law, an eye for an eye, it sounds brutal to us. But it's actually uh, really helpful when it comes to the legal system. It's saying that you don't punish someone beyond their damages, right? The, the right punishment for the right crime. Because think about the times where you felt wronged. If, if someone took your eye, you would be like, I'm going to kill your whole family, right? Someone cut you off on the road and you thought that. So, so we, the way we enact vengeance, the way we judge is never fair. It's never just. It's never equal. And we often go into sin as we take on the judgment and, and revenge on our hands and in our shoulders. And, God, and what David does is he offers that to the Lord. 
He surrenders to God as judge. And as he does that, he's able to become vulnerable with himself and with the Lord. He's able to pull back a little bit from the anger and share this intimacy with the Lord where he cries with God. There's so few people I want to let into my tears. There's so few people that I would let see me cry. But David, in the pain, hurt, and betrayal, in him feeling utterly alone, he sits in front of the Lord and he cries. He weeps, he mourns. And he says, God, you hear me. Put them on your scroll, record them, sit next to me and grieve with me. And it's in the surrendering of vengeful thinking and judgment that we get to come to a place of vulnerability with God. Have you been willing to share your pain with the Lord? Have you been willing to let the Lord see and sit with your hurt? David allows for that. Thirdly, he trusts in God over man. And there's these two verses here in different parts of the psalm that mirror each other. When I was afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust and, not, and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So look at this. In verse 3, he says, I'm, I'm fearful. And in verse 4, he says, I'm not afraid. And trusting God is what takes place in between those two emotions. Of being scared, of being fearful, and being at peace. You know, I think that we not only trust God, but we can often trust our fears, uh, people who are slandering us, people who are against us as well. What do I mean by that? It's so easy for David to trust Saul, that tr Saul was after his life and would take it. We often take the future and attach it to the person pursuing us. And, and that's trust. We're trusting that they're able to enact this future. David was fearful that Saul was able to enact this future of taking his life. But then he trusts God. He sees him and he says, no, my life is really in the hand of the Lord. Right? He's fearful that, that this whole nation is slandering him. And that the future is that he's a fugitive for the rest of his life. But instead, he says, instead of trusting what's going on in this nation, me getting canceled here, I'm going to trust God that he anointed me, that he called me to be king. Trust is attached to future. Trust is attached to our emotions about the future. And when we trust the Lord to be more powerful, to be stronger, to, be, to care for us, our future and our emotions about it change. So think about how you're looking at the future and who you're trusting for it. Is it the insecurity of your own hands? Is it your boss providing and, and giving you provision? And if you're not in his graces, then you might become poor. Is it your friends who are allowing you to not be your, alone or your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Or are you trusting in God and believing that he's providing for you? He loves you and he's with you. Lastly, David remembers his vows. He says, I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You know, I've been able to stand in front of many of you in premarital as I hear about your fears and your hopes. 
hear about the things that are hard in your relationship, but the things that are beautiful. I've been able to stand in front of many of you as you make your vows to one another on your wedding day. And it's a beautiful moment. You know, a lot of couples want to share their own vows. And I'm like, yeah, do that. But usually you're just like gushing over each other. Read, read this thing. Read the better for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health by death do us part. Because that's, that's a vow. That's what you're committing to, this unconditional commitment to another person. And even though people make their vows on that day, they're not tested on their wedding day. They're tested in the years following. They're tested when they fight for two or three years. And it feels like the fights will never end. It's tested when there's a horrible car accident. And you're looking at your wife and you're like, I need to pivot my whole world into caretaking. Looking up YouTubes on how to bathe another person. It's tested when your business tanks and you move from a house back to an apartment like 20 years ago. It's tested when the person next to you is wrestling with depression, not for six months or two years, but seven. And then we start asking ourselves, is this person enough? Or did I marry her and health? Did I, was I actually promising to be with her and wealth? Did I, do I really love him when it's better? Or is it just him and her? I remember that year when things were really hard. You know, for pastors, um, again, this has been a great year. But <laughs> the last three have been really good. But um, I think the hardest part about being a pastor is that we have to attach and detach so many times. Um, if you care about people and you're not just isolating, right? You bring someone in, you meet them, you hear their story, and you start attaching. But in the course of your life and the life of this church, of course, people are going to transition out. I think a normal person probably only goes through a few attachment and detachments that are significant a year. Maybe three, maybe five. I feel like pastors go through like dozens. And sometimes it happens in a really healthy way. Uh, Tim and Megan, they, they still visit us. When they left, they wrote a card. They thanked me and Nina for our ministry to them. And, and it's like, it still hurts. It's still a wound, but it's nice and clean. You put a Band-Aid on it, and it will heal over. And then sometimes the attachment is violent. You know, it's met with gossip, and, and, and someone's mad, and all of those things. And then the wound is deeper and infected, and you got to take antibiotics. And I remember, again, those couple years being so hard. And as I'm praying with Jesus, I just saw him, we were upstairs at the time, standing upstairs in the sanctuary with me. Everyone else is kind of blurred, walking in and out of the room. But he's clear. And he says, if I'm here, will you stay too? If I'm calling you here, is that enough? And I think that's the covenant that we're making to the Lord. That in every season of our life, just like we do with our wife and husband, we're saying, I will worship you and I will walk in your way and you're my God. Whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm sick or healthy, you are my God. And that's what David does here. That's what David does here in the land of his enemies. He says, I am under vows to you, my God. I'm under vows to you. And that's what all the great heroes do. Jacob got up, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, 
His children were taken away. His wealth is wiped out. His health is um, desecrate. He falls to the ground to worship, and he says, naked I come to my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord give, the Lord take it away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to the king or his idols. And they're standing in front of a, a blazing fire, ready to be thrown in and burnt to death. And they said, they said their vows. They said, if we're thrown into this blazing furnace, the Lord we serve is able to save us from it. He will rescue us from your hands, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Again and again, these great men and women of faith through history and here have made their vows to the Lord and has stood with him in the best and worst of times. And they say, God, you are enough. We don't know whether our wife or husband or the Lord is enough until it's tested. And I've seen so many people walk away from the faith because their first vow wasn't just about God. It was about God and all these other things. But Jesus makes a covenant with us as well, doesn't he? And he makes this covenant first. He's the first to give his life. We're going to take communion this morning. And as we open up this communion cup, we remember that it wasn't us who came to the Lord, but it's the Lord who came to us. And it wasn't us who beckoned him, but it was him who beckoned us. And it wasn't us who gave our life first, who said better or worse first. It was him. He was in Gethsemane saying, not my will, but your will be done. And then he was on the cross forgiving us, allowing his body to be broken for us and his blood to be shed. So this morning as we take communion, we'll remember the first covenant that was made. That Jesus says, you're my son, you're my daughter, I forgive you. But then let's remember the covenant that we made to the Lord as well. God, you're my savior, you forgave me, and my life is unconditionally yours. As we take communion this morning, would we remake this covenant before the Lord? Will we say again that we are his and he is ours, regardless of what's going on in our life? When we do that, it's what allows us to trust him as judge. When we do that, it's what allows us to trust him with our future and to trust him with our lives. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Erwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. 
Our goal is to raise $50,000 over this season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.